I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. Let's do this thing! Yes! Didn't quite have the same authenticity of feeling, but it was pretty good. Re-evocation. Oh, because I didn't authentically meet it. I know, but nonetheless, your anamnetic approach... Wasn't there a motu proprio a year, few years back called uh, authentic... <laughs> no, it's called, let's do this thing. <laughs> no, no. Authentic feeling? Yeah. <laughs> authenticity of feeling. Emotion. Martin Heidegger wrote a thing called Das Ding. That's something what? different, though, I think. Das Ding. Yeah. Hey, what are we talking about today? Yes. What are I we believe, talking about? I believe that Chris has a quiz for us. <laughs> Do you have a quiz, really, Chris? No, I don't. Oh, darn it. I, I, I'm kind of behind on my quizzes. I need to... Uh, Need to generate another one. I was going to do one on Lent and uh, Easter, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Life hey, happens. speaking yeah. of quizzes for Chris Carson's, mm. uh, your class for our online yes. study program yes. on Liturgy of the Hours is online. Yes. And people yes. can buy that. And there's a and quiz you, at the end of that if you yeah. want to get your, oh. your quiz. After each class. So, uh, so there's a quiz at the end if you want to take that. But it's a wonderful course on yeah. Liturgy of the Hours. You can go to uh, www.liturgy.online. Yeah, speaking of quiz, who besides my mom have uh, purchased that so far? Uh, I can tell you right. I can literally <laughs> tell you right now. I have my mom. This. Um, your mom has not purchased it. Sorry. What? She only uh. has. She only. Yeah, she only bought Dennis's, looks like. <laughs> you can blame her. When I wrote uh, Catholic Church Architecture in the Spirit of the Liturgy, my mom said, are you going to give me one? And I said, what do you mean? You should buy one. And she <laughs> said, well, you son. know, she's like, if you can't give one to your mom, who can you give one to? And I said, well, if you can't buy one from your son, who can you buy one from? So uh, I can tell you, Chris, that already 151 people have purchased that yes. class. And that just went on sale, what, this morning? Uh, last Wednesday. I mean, we don't re- we don't want to reveal when people uh, when re- to people when we record these, but ah, uh, uh, yeah, okay, all right. Well, enough of that. Yeah, let's wrap up this liturgy of the word. Wrap it up. Are we going to do all three of those things in this this episode? Yeah. Do you, well, I don't, I don't know if you'll stop interrupting the whole time. <laughs> all right, you I talk. Know. I'll drink. All right. <laughs> no, I think we can get all three in. Although. To be sure, uh, each one of these. So the the liturgy of the word goes from the first reading through the psalm, possibly second reading. Then you've got the alleluia, which is a rite in itself. Sometimes you have the sequence. And now we're up to the homily. Homily. Followed by the creed and concluding with the universal prayer. So those are the three things that were made. According to my research, we're going to spend about 10 minutes on the homily, right? I no more. No, <laughs> no seven. more. Seven. Yeah. yeah, the only thing worse than hearing a homily is hearing the liturgy guys talk about a homily. Nothing? No, I was I laughing. Was, sorry. Sorry, I, I, had my, a... I had my microphone muted. I'm sorry. I did chuckle at that. You want me to chuckle again? I rarely All say right, anything chuckle? funny. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Michael, can it's you like put a... the laugh track in there, please? <laughs> <laughs> no, give him the crickets up there. <laughs> How about a bunch of booze? That would be good. But let me tell you, even though we haven't done an etymology episode in a while, 
Do you know the etymological word origin of homily? Comes from homo, man? No, good guess. Dang it. (laughs) Or same? Homo, same? I don't know. Mm, Close. It actually comes from the Greek homilia, which they translate as conversation or discourse. But the root of it Mm. then is like homogeneous, together. Mm. And then one... The I-L-E is like a troop, a band, or a crowd. It actually is related to the word um, soldier in some way. So the crowd of people together would get their discussion, their conversation together with the crowd. So, so there you go. before it became a Christian thing, it was it, this is a term from Greek culture that uh, what the general or something conversation would... discourse. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So if well, you give a discourse to somebody, it's usually to a group, not to one on one. So it's a little different than a uh, go out for a beer. Uh, so the I-L-E is the troop, band, or crowd. So give hmm. it to – it's like we're going to – you know, well, the mid, the uh, halftime talk in the in the locker room in the football game. That's a homily. Yeah, or like or like the general before going into battle, right? Same – yeah, that's basically that's the same thing as football. Like the Spartacus mm-hmm. thing or whatever? Hmm. Yep. Or Braveheart? Freedom! Now, we're, now you need an article on Adoramus called the Braveheart homily. Oh, yeah. Brave of heart homily. The homily – Hey, remind me of that word uh, when we get to uh, the creed. But the homily, the germ says, is part of the liturgy and highly recommended. As in not required? Uh, yeah. It is not required. Even on Sundays and solemnities? Well, it is required on some days. But so why, why is it making this point that it's a part of the liturgy? Because it's I, part of the yeah. liturgy of the word. Which is part of the liturgy. Although I imagine they're really trying to bring up an antidote to the preconciliar practice where they would often skip it on weekdays or other days completely, just not uh, like classroom catechetical moment when everybody's there as opposed to something of the liturgy itself. Yeah, I'll admit I, I'm not certain of the veracity of this, but it, wasn't there something about uh, the, the homilist or whoever was preaching would remove uh, uh, the vestment from around his arm? Is that the maniple? Yeah. Maniple, yeah. Yeah, uh, as an indication that it was that what's about to take place now is not a part of the liturgy. You heard anything like that? Huh. No, but I have seen that happen. I, I never really thought about it, but yeah, that's at least again, I just anecdotally, that's what I've, I've heard. So I, I think part of what's behind this is that it, this is not some kind of a halftime break or something, but it's an integral part of the liturgy of the word. It, so it's not a theatrical aside. It's definitely not that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and you know, in the old days, they used to have these guest homilists, and I imagine someone like Cardinal Newman would have been one of these people who was so good at lectures and rhetoric. They'd have this guest sermon, and it would be kind of a stop in the middle of of everything. Um, so anyway, but you know, th- that uh, footnote refers to Sacrosanctum Concilium Fifty Two, which uh, says, by means of the homily, the mysteries of the faith are expounded, is therefore to be highly esteemed as part of the liturgy itself. So I guess because it's an extension out of the Liturgy of the Word. It is part of the Liturgy of the Word. Should not be omitted except for a serious reason. Is that uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium? Okay. Yes, paragraph 52. 52. All right. It says here in the germ, it is necessary for nurturing of the Christian life. All right. Uh, what else? It should be, what What should the homily, um, what's the contents of the homily? What is it based upon? It should be about a movie the priest saw or their last vacation <laughs> or the thought they had between the chair and the ambo. I think it always has to start with a joke. I think that's part of it. It says uh, explanation of some aspect of one 
the readings from sacred scripture, or two, another text from the ordinary or the proper of the mass of the day. Mm-hmm. So those are your options. I mean, so you could, what, you could deliver a homily on the, uh, on the Sanctus or on the uh, Confiteor. Or the Entrance Antiphon. Or the Entrance Antiphon. Or an episode of the Liturgy, guys. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well, you know, I have a little thing in my own mind, which is because I'm cranky. And even at 10 o'clock in the morning, I'm not usually fully awake yet at Mass. If anybody's homily starts, as I was thinking about this gospel, I'm out. I'm done. <laughs> I don't want to hear about the process. I want to hear the fruit of the contemplation. So Jesus says in this gospel, or St. Teresa of Avila's great contribution, not as I was thinking about it, it occurred to me that Jesus says Hmm. in this gospel. Boom. Hmm. Start with a strong claim. You know, uh, there's a – we've never done a podcast on this that I can remember, uh, and I remember all of them. Uh, This is on the 2014 homiletic directory. Remember this? Um, so this is a document from the Holy See, from the Congregation for Divine Worship and Discipline mm-hmm. of the Sacraments, the homiletic directory. And there's a, some interesting things in that. Uh, the one is that they call preaching an ars predicandi. And so we have talked in the past about ars celebrandi, this art of celebrating. Well, preaching similarly is a skill, is an ours. It's 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 an artwork, okay? Um, but in there, it describes, you know, to your point, Dennis, about what's the kind of what's the mix, what's going into the uh, composition of a homily. It lists a number of things. There's the word of God, obviously, uh, the but the priest's own spiritual life, right? So he's not speaking to you as a lecturer or an academic, but you know, mm-hmm. but from uh, as a as a fellow believer. The people's needs, right? What do, what do the people whom you're speaking to need to hear about? I mean, uh, uh, college students need a different message than, you know, octogenarians at, uh, at a different parish. Uh, what else? Current events. And it, it, that's that's my word. It's not meant to be commentary on current events, but it takes into account what's happening in, in the world around us. Uh, his own skills as a homilist, and finally, last but not least, the Holy Spirit. Hmm. But I mean, again, that, that re- I jotted those down, and when you said that, you know, a homily that begins, as I was thinking about this gospel, just all that need, you want to see the fruit of all of this stuff, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, the priest, Lexio Divina, uh, his, uh, how he's uh, exercising his skill as a homilist, how the Holy Spirit is opening our ears and hearts and his mouth as well. I mean, there's a whole lot that uh, is coming together. Right. And it doesn't mean that the priest hasn't thought about it or read it or done the Lectio. Uh, it's just my cranky thing. But, you know, the homily is not a classroom instruction, although it may have classroom instruction kind of content. I try to think of it more like St. Paul, St. Peter, just heard from Christ, just you know, the, the, imagine you could have a homily by the people on the road to Emmaus, and then the, this, this is what happened to us. This is what Christianity is all about. He explained the mystery to me. I don't have to tell you. It's so exciting. In that sense, like, as I was thinking about what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, I formulated the idea. <laughs> so many words before you've even told the message. It's like, boom, Jesus is risen. Jesus is alive. This is why it matters. This is why you should think about this. I remember many years ago, and I think I may have mentioned this on some episode of the podcast, uh, Peter John Cameron came to give a homily, a, a session on preaching for us, a conference on preaching, and he tortured everybody for 20 minutes with the Socratic method with the question, what does everybody in the church want to hear 
and what, what answer do they want? What do they want to know in a homily? And everybody went around, oh, the meaning of the gospel, kind of, yeah, but it wasn't that. Do you remember what the answer was? Jesse? I was not here when I don't that think I remember. I'll bet it was, I think you've told me this before. I don't remember being there. It's uh, how, how is the gospel going to change my life? Yeah, what's wrong with me and how do I fix it? Right? Huh. Because our fundamental concern is our fallenness. And the fundamental revelation of God is how you become divinized and member of the life of the Trinity. So what's wrong with me? How do I fix it? And if you can do that, uh, that's the fundamental Christian message. And then it's mm. explained out in a million ways. Hmm. Dennis, you should be a homilist. Oh, but unfortunately, you. you can't. But what does it say there in number 66, Chris? It says the homily should ordinarily be given by the priest celebrant himself or entrusted by him to a celebrating priest or from time to time and, if appropriate, to a deacon, but never to a layperson. Boo. Clericalism. <laughs> you know, here at the college, we have all these very educated theology professors, you know, and they could probably give an awesome homily if they wanted to. So sometimes it's a little intimidating to to preach at a at a Catholic college because you have all these highly trained intellectuals in your um, pews. But it's not so much about the um, the the study, although that's an important part of it as much as it is mm -hmm. the office, the action of the Holy Spirit. You know, every all those years I would sit in uh, CAM meetings at Mundelein Seminary, and we'd have these little reflection moments, and people would say, I was a deacon, and I had to preach, but the pastor didn't tell me, and then two minutes before Mass, he said, you're preaching today, and they had no preparation at all, and he said, the best homily I ever gave. That used to happen every year, huh. because the Holy Spirit was just leading, uh, leading them to speak, and hopefully they had enough in their collective mental baggage to have something smart to say, too, but oh. the Holy Spirit brings the words, ideally. Well, here I have a couple of Cardinal Burke anecdotes. You guys know that then Bishop Burke of the Diocese of La Crosse first got me into this uh, liturgy business. And I still remember to this day, he came to I mean, his confirmation or something like that, and he forgot his text. Uh, Cardinal Burke is very organized and thought out and written out. And, uh, um, no wonder he hired you, huh? Okay. <laughs> yeah. And he forgot his text, though. <laughs> and he always preached from a text, but he didn't have it. So he just had to go sort of, you know, off the cuff in a certain sense. Um, off the maniple. It, it was, uh, <laughs> it, it was, it was a, a fantastic homily. And I think for that same reason that you're mentioning, Dennis, and you know, here's another one from, that I remember from Cardinal Burke days is there's such a thing as children's liturgy of the word and things like that, where the children are uh, dismissed and they hear, you know, uh, they, they hear the readings maybe in a simplified form and uh, a, a non-cleric would explain or give a meditation or something like that. But we, he was not in favor of that in the diocese because he felt that there was something he felt, he thought he knew there's something real about grace that comes with the sacrament of orders. And I think your uh, example of the seminarians who just, oh, okay, I got two minutes and I'm going to preach or his own example of a preaching, forgetting the text, you know, there's just because you're ordained doesn't make you John Henry Cardinal Newman. But th on the other hand, there is something real about the Holy Spirit's uh, grace that comes to uh, through the power of ordination. Yeah. We just, at the camp meetings, we used to have to give little reflections every, every week. It was practice for the seminarians to give a little reflection. And they would put me in the cycle every semester. And man, was it hard. Like, maybe you <laughs> gave me this idea of how hard it is to prepare a homily that's interesting, that's well thought out, that has got some content that you want people to hear. It is very difficult. So be kind to your priests if uh, 
sometimes they're so busy they don't have 10 hours to devote to. Oh, it's, and it's not like what you guys are saying. It's not about being capable to do it, right? It's about the sacramental sign behind what's happening. And so I think that's what people yeah. get really confused on, on two sides, right? I think there's one thing that's saying, well, why is he doing it? I could give a better homily. And mm. maybe on a human level, that's absolutely true, like Dennis said. But then on the other side, we hear a lot of like, oh, man, I wish that he was giving a better homily, right? Because we have, we're not connecting on a human level, but we're missing out on this sacramental level of what's going on. And I think, you know, getting an understanding of what this all is can help rein both of those in a little bit, at least that's what my hope mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Well, and what, what did you say the, the word homily meant? Um, like a discourse to a large group. Okay. So there, there's something not just about the speaker, there's something about the listeners too. And so maybe part of the reason that your pastor is not giving what you think are good homilies might be you. <laughs> it's that there's a certain, you know, we have to bring something uh, as well. And the Holy Spirit is working on recipients. But hey, one last thing before we leave this point. So you talked about being at the seminary, Dennis, and mm. the deacons uh, having to preach. It used to be the thing that seminarians would go out and not as deacons yet. Right. And give a reflection. Homily. Yeah. Is that legit? No. What? Oh, well, it, well, you have to nuance that, right? Yeah. If, if the priest does. It's not a homily. It's a reflection. Right. Yeah, I... because you have you have times where you have a visiting missionary. And is I've always heard this. Isn't it the rule that the priest actually has to at least give some type of homily and then you bring the the person on mission, you know, to ask for an appeal or something? Hmm. I think um... – uh, I can't put it's somewhere in this document called Ecclesiae de Mysterio. This is where it speaks of the seminarians not doing this. But I think I think it's in that where it says that um, anything that might be confused with the homily is similarly not to be done. So, you know, even if you stop calling it a homily and start calling it an appeal or a reflection or something like that, if it's coming after the gospel and before the creed, for all intents and purposes, it's a homily and that's not the place to do it. So any of these appeals or whatnot should be prayer after communion. Right. And Redemptionis Sacramentum touches on this. Oh, is that exactly. it? Yeah. Number 66, the prohibition of the admission of laypersons to preach also applies to seminarians, students of theological disciplines, and those who have assumed the function known as pastoral assistants. Uh, but then in 74, it says, if the need arises for the gathered faithful to be given instruction or testimony by a layperson, it is altogether preferable that this be done outside of Mass. Oh, no uh, for so serious if that reasons. answers your question, you can email us at questions. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah, says, if like for serious reasons it's necessary, it can be given after the priest has proclaimed the prayer after communion, not oh. during the time of the homily. Hmm. I wonder if uh, we have uh, a number of uh, uh, Hmong uh, Catholics in the Diocese of La Crosse, and not all of our priests, priests speak Hmong. In fact, one of them does. You know, I wonder if that would be – and so if the bishop's going to come. Uh, to their community, to their parish. Uh, Bishop doesn't speak Hmong. So that maybe that would be uh, one of those examples where just the language barrier absolutely necessitates that uh, some sort of translation. That happened to me at, at Marytown next door. We were there on one of their, you know, provincial feasts or something. And the, uh, I don't know. So you have the provincial, which is Father Benedict, but then there's the superior general or whatever. And he was visiting, but he didn't have he didn't feel like he had a good enough command of the mm. English language, and so uh -huh. he had somebody translating for him during the homily. Huh. Hey, before we leave the homily, this 
about when it's supposed to be given. This is still in 66. Uh, on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation, there is to be a homily at every Mass that is celebrated with the people attending, and it may not be omitted without a grave reason. On other days, it is recommended. Oh, so that clarifies that point. Yeah. Good. Yeah. All right. Should we go to the profession of face? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let's go to the profession of face, Chris. <laughs> that was so good. All right. Oh, now yeah. I'm going to sit in the corner for a while. Take uh, it away. <laughs> well, paragraph 67 says. Oh, I'm crying. That was good. They call it the symbolum first. Chris. Oh, yeah. The purpose of the symbolum or the profession of faith. What's that about? Yeah, well, uh, I think this is, uh, it speaks to that great word symbolon. Uh, and the catechism uh, mentions it about, um, it's two, it's parts of a broken object placed together into a whole. And I think when they call the, the creed the symbol, uh, they don't mean like some of us might hear that word that it's us, just symbolic of the faith, but rather when you pray these words from the heart, your faith, the substance of your faith is somehow made active, real, and manifest in your midst. So, so to symbolize the faith by the creed, by the profession, actualizes your faith, makes it present there. Yeah, if Wikipedia can be trusted, it says it was sometimes called the symbol of faith, uh, not the profession per se at some point. Uh, yeah. Does your translation call it uh, the symbol? Well, it says the symbol on or yeah, profession that's not, of faith or that's, creed. That's not in the uh, post uh, liturgia Authenticum translation. I am so glad I have the outdated mm, version good. here. Yeah. So for those of you who are listening at home, when the when the general instruction came out in two thousand one, they translated it, but then liturgia Authenticum came out mm, later. <laughs> I don't remember the date of liturgia Authenticum. In any case, so the the so I have a, a, a post liturgiam authenticam translation. Dennis has a pre liturgiam authentic, and so we we find it interesting what changed and what didn't and what was uh, omitted. I never knew that being too lazy to go to Amazon and order the updated translation would actually be a helpful thing. And, yeah. and who translated liturgiam authenticam? <laughs> <laughs> that is a nerdy joke. I I think five of you will get it, but that's okay. I think it was actually written in English. To the first, but it had to be. It did have to be translated in other languages. That's an interesting hmm. thing. Wow! All right, in the symbol, the whole gathered people may respond to the word of God uh, proclaimed. And you remember Dennis's little etymology of cre creed that we used to roll out during mystical body, mystical voice uh, days. No, I don't. Yeah, that uh, creed. Uh, some suggest is a combination of credo is a combination of cordo. Oh. And core means heart. You're cordially invited to listen to this podcast. And do is like the root of I, gi I give, like donate. So to say credo. I give my heart. Is to say I give my heart. And so imagine you've had this corad cor loquitur between God's heart to your heart, this dialogue going back and forth. And now kind of as this, conver this great conversation culminates, you're about to say, Lord, I give you my heart to all those things which you have just uh, revealed to me. So that's kind of the... I don't know, the importance of uh, of the creed and what's going on there. I love it. All right. And so they uh, respond and they also, um, let's say, honor and confess the great mysteries of faith by pronouncing the rule, the, the law of faith in a formula approved. Now, some of these mysteries of faith, I mean, the creed contains all of these, but uh, you might remember that one about uh, consubstantial 
was one of those consubstantial. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Consubstantialem patri, the Latin. Yeah. So the son is uh, of the same uh, uh, substance substance as the father, the and that came in at the standing beneath. Yeah. And so this is this is called uh, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed because it was, I don't know. Uh, Produced, promulgated uh, after the Council of Nicaea in 351 or thereabouts. And then uh, uh, at the Council of Constantinople in 381, there were other things added about the Holy Spirit. So, for example, uh, it used to say before Constantinople, for us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. Constantinople, they added, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary. Likewise, at Constantinople, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified. That too was added at Constantinople. And that's just to clarify some of the former heresies that were around, like whether it was uh, Jesus was like man, but had a relationship with God, you know, that type of stuff. Yeah, same with the Holy Spirit. Was the Holy Spirit yeah. God? Now, where did the from from whom does the Holy Spirit proceed? From the Father. Depends. Are you Greek? <laughs> so this part uh, and the Son, called filioque, and yeah. the Son, that was added in the early 11th century. But this is the 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 rule of faith that confesses the mysteries of the faith, and those right, are because these that. are baptismal formulas, right? So you would profess these things at your baptism. Now, when they bring them back into the Mass, it's that. Re- Kind of re-saying of your baptismal. Well, now that's that's belief, a great right? question. Okay, so in a formula approved, so when it's time for the creed, what are the formulas that you can use? So you can use this Nicene Constantinopolitan. Mm-hmm. That's one. You can use the Apostles' Creed. Yeah. Now it used to be you couldn't use the Apostles' Creed at Mass. That's something that's unless it's masses with children. But at the the third edition of the Roman Missal, that's now a legit option. Uh, for any mass where the creed is uh, called for, but what about baptismal promises? Yeah, you can do those in in place of creed. Mm-hmm. Well, that does take place uh, often uh, at let's say Easter Sunday morning, okay, or 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 ma- our mass with a baptism. Mm-hmm. But could right? you just uh, uh, just the seventh Sunday of ordinary time? Could uh, the priest say we're not going to do the either we're not going to do the Nicene Creed or Apostles Creed? We're going to substitute the uh, baptismal promises. Can you do that? Just as a third option. I think it's. I think it's the first two. That was made by guess. Dennis, what do you think? I have no guess. I have no guess. <laughs> uh, I don't have an answer. What? But I, I think uh, it's Jesse's right. I think uh, no. It's it's not like a third option that you can just use or not use. Like either the first two. But if there are the renewal of baptismal promises in the creed isn't uh, included. But yeah, I don't think you can just use it. Anyway, so when do you use it, Dennis, at number 68? Uh, when appropriate. <laughs> but also. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's and what now it says. on to the universal prayers of the universal church. Well, it says on Sundays and solemnities. It may also be said at particular celebrations of a more solemn character, which then would lead us to determine how solemn is solemn. How green is green? How solemn is solemn? Yeah. Yeah. Good. How okay. solemn is solemn, Chris? When would, oh. What's your cutoff for uh, using the creed? Oh, let's see. When might like, Would you use it for a personal solemnity or like a parochial solemnity? Well, but that would be a solemnity. 
So uh, the May 3rd Feast but of Saints. But it's not an Phil- official. Sure it is. It's not like a, f- okay. It is in, in my church. So what's your parish these days? St. Raphael. So it'd be okay. the Archangels. Yeah. So when's, uh, is that September 29th? Is that a, so- that's a solemnity. Is that a feast or solemnity? It's a feast. I Dennis, mean. didn't you just write a book on? <laughs> yeah. It's not one of the solemnities. No. Okay. No, it's not okay, a solemnity. But in Jesse Weiler's parish, it is a solemnity. So you would use, you would use the creed. So I don't know. Um, we, uh. Maybe a certain anniversary, you know. We celebrated uh, 100, the sesquicentennial of the Diocese of La Crosse. We had a number of uh, anniversary celebrations around, so I think that would constitute that. Uh, well, as I was I, zooming around the country between you and Father Minky at the USCCB as to whether or not we could celebrate Fra Angelico's feast day at all. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. But let's just say our parish was Blessed Fra Angelico. Mm-hmm. Oh well, then that gives us a solemnity. Could mm-hmm. we? Could could we ever not just as a Pious group of people. You could have a patronal feast, right? Yeah, except it's not officially our. Pa- I mean, it's our patron, but it's not patron in the sense of a parish. So, if mm-hmm. we could do it at all, could we ever use the creed just because we're a group of people under the I, prayerful? I think you could. I mean, yeah? if you if you are according to number sixty eight, particular celebrations of a more solemn character. Yeah, I think the celebrant, if you know, if he's making his decision not on whether he likes to use it or not, it'd be nice if we included. But no, this is legitimately. Uh, a solemn celebration. So maybe a baccalaureate mass or something like that. You know, maybe they would do that at Benedict. Okay. I don't know. Okay. All right. Jesse, do we have time to wrap up with the universal prayer? Um, I think so. Okay. I did have one question though. Yeah. Well, save for I've the questions. Heard, uh, uh, <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. This question's from Jesse Warner. Uh, I've always heard that the creed and the our father or the Lord's prayer have a, special statement about being in Latin still in the Novus Ordo. Is that in this document or where do we get that from? Well, I think you want to answer it, Dennis? Well, I think there are a few places, um, some of the preconciliar documents. And I think um, Jubilate Deo also says certain one that the creed and our father in Latin are the first things to be kept in Latin. Yeah, right? well, uh, well, I don't know that, but I think that uh, certain he he does say he Paul the sixth in Jubilate Deo says that uh, um, the Catholics around the world should be able to say or sing the ordinary of the mass. And now, when you think of the ordinary of the mass, you probably think of the uh, the Kyrie holy, holy, and yeah. the, the Sanctus and the Agnus Dei. But the creed is a part of the ordinary and the Lord's prayer. Yeah. So, and in fact, the the singing of the creed, whether it's in Latin or not, is I mean, this almost never happens in any parish. That's one of those first tier types of uh, uh, pieces of music. So, anyway, mm-hmm. did you find anything? No. I, okay. I know I've seen it before, but I can't hmm. find it right now. Maybe if we take a break between uh, the podcast and the question uh, section, we can <laughs> try to find we, it. We can just re ask that question. Re ask question. Yeah. Okay. Gunda, send us that question now. All right. So, so, the last part of the liturgy of the word is the universal prayer. Um, it had been called, you know, the general intercessions, and I suppose it still is. I remember it does say in the order of mass that they're called the bidding prayers still. But I think universal is uh, gives you a good indication. Is they're they're meant to be universal groups, categories, and things. Is like it that. still the prayer of the faithful, or is that outdated terminology? Uh, what my translation says in the universal prayer or prayer of the faithful. So I guess that's ah, still, okay. even though the paragraph heading is universal. My prayer. 2002 translation does not use universal prayer at all. Crazy. 
The people respond in some sense to the word of God, which they have received in faith and exercising the office of their baptismal priesthood, offer prayers to God for the salvation of the universe. So um, early on, we talked about that. This is this is an exercise of the baptismal priesthood and sort of as a high point of the liturgy of the word in a similar way to the reception of communion is to the uh, high point of the liturgy of the Eucharist. Uh, if you're not baptized and you're an RCIA, the option is you can be dismissed before this point because you don't have any baptismal priesthood to uh, offer or to exercise uh, at this point. Ah, oh, that's cool. I always assumed it was just because you weren't fully initiated into the Eucharist, but it's actually before yeah. these prayers. So that's good. It is. It is. Yeah. You're smart, Chris. Smart, oh, Chris. Yeah, very smart. The series of uh, intentions are usually the needs of the church, the whole world, those burdened by any kind of difficulty in the local community. This came up in one of the uh, one of the quizzes that we had once. Is true or false? The last petition for the universal prayer is always for the deceased. False. False. Yeah, it is false. Even though probably most of us. I mean, this is not. In, this is not a crazy idea to pray for the deceased, the universal prayer. But at the same time, it's not what uh, the general instruction uh, calls for. Now, at evening prayer, the last one there is always for the deceased because evening prayer, Jesse, as you know from that Liturgy of the Hours online course, is kind of this looking ahead to uh, to uh, the final meeting with uh, Christ. And so it has a... It, it keeps death very much in mind at evening. Now, Chris, we say things like the missile doesn't say to hold hands during their father, so therefore you shouldn't, okay? Mm-hmm. This does not say pray for the dead. So does that mean Do we may keep... Do not pray for the dead. Yeah, no, does no, this no. say you may not have your local pious custom, or is it sort of, it's one we like, so we tolerate it? No, I think, uh, I would say, you know, in that line after the list there, it says, nevertheless, in any particular celebration such as confirmation, marriage, or a funeral, the series of intentions may be concerned more closely with a particular occasion. So, you know, I I think, um, yeah, I I just don't think it's out of place to pray for the dead in the, if you want to file that under the rubric of, you know, other intentions you could. I file it under the rubric that Chris likes it, so he... Yeah, I like it, so it's okay to do. But I do think that... (laughs) You know, generally, specific persons are, I, I don't think that's likewise in keeping with the universal character of the prayer. How about who leads this prayer? Because uh, when I was a student in the olden days, the last century, the University of Virginia, it was a common thing. <laughs> last millennium. Yeah. Oh, that's too. <laughs> yeah. You mean in the ni- late 1900s? Yeah. <laughs> that was not uncommon, which means it was common every Sunday. They would open up the the universal prayer to the congregation, and so you'd hear somebody from one end of the church saying, "For my uncle Harry, who's got this and that," and people would murmur stuff. You had no idea what you were praying for, and it was, I guess, the intention was that it was more personal, and the community got to speak. But mostly, it was just kind of crazy because you never knew when to stop. You didn't know what people were saying. They could have been calling for the destruction of the church, and the whole category, the whole congregation would have said, "Lord, hear our prayer," because they didn't really hear <laughs> what was saying. So uh, who can do this? Who can lead this? Yeah, well, uh, the priest, uh, what does it say, um, regulates this prayer from the chair. He himself begins it with a brief intro by which he calls upon the faithful to pray. And then likewise, he concludes it with an oration. So before I get to your question, sometimes you know, should, should the whole assembly pray like a Hail Mary or something to conclude this? Not I've a, seen it done. Yeah, not <laughs> according to... Um, 
this here at number 71. It, 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 the celebrant alone concludes it <clears throat> with a type of collect. The intentions announced should be sober, be composed with wise liberty and few words, because that's the, the Roman way, and expresses of the entire uh, community, right? So even though, you know, I'm sure the entire community wants to pray for that person's uncle, whatever it was, Ted, who has such and such. I mean, they're supposed to be, have this universal uh, application. They're not supposed to be made up of a bunch of uh, personalized intentions. Right. Obviously, for the sick includes everybody's Uncle Harry and Aunt Martha and whoever's in the room. And Uncle Harry should be prayed for, but that's, you know, could be prayed for personally outside of prayer and things like that. Do you remember how Monsignor Mannion used to have us do the... Uh, I do. When we were oh, first there, it was just that. for the sick. Pause. So we had a chance to think about who we knew that was sick. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. Yeah. No long prosy things, just for the church, period. Or ellipsis, I guess. Ah, you know, I had forgotten about that, Dennis, but that... That really is a good, uh, well, and in fact, the people, for their part, give expression to the prayer by an invocation said, co uh, said in common uh, after each intercession or by praying in silence. So the, the, the sort of model that we think is standard and can't be, uh, uh, you know, changed at all. No, there are other, like you're suggesting there with a, with a period of silence, either as the response or the period of silence to... Uh, actually fill in uh, intentionally these people is uh, it's a great thing to do. And very short. I like it. Short. For the and sick. also where, sorry, I was just going to say where, because sometimes people will use the AMBO for this or. It says uh, announced at the AMBO or from another suitable place by the deacon or by a cantor. See, like you're saying, Dennis, I mean, to sing these is again, that's if the people can respond to it, it's a category one something that should be sung. So this is this is up there, um, sung by the deacon, by the cantor, or by a reader, or the lay faithful. So lots of options. All right. You got everything in there that you wanted to talk oh, about? Oh, yeah. So there's your Liturgy of the Word uh, by the book. Well, it does mention the people stand, right? Uh, Did we talk about that? Mm -mm. Yeah. Remember, what, remember those three postures? Kneeling is adoration, sitting is receptivity, and standing is? Exercise. Action, action, being ready Priesthood, to, to exercising act. your priesthood. Right. So the people stand and give expression to their prayer. And uh, so there you go. Oh, although. <laughs> oh, my God. Unless it's let us kneel. <laughs> it, right. That's just what I was thinking of. Those Good Friday, uh, they say, or I remember hearing this once, is that the Good Friday petitions was kind of the, the standard form for a lot of centuries until I think Gregory the Great kind of thought he needed to streamline that a little bit. But actually, if you think about that, how that how that worked, they would stand while the petition is read and then they say, let us kneel, right? And then you mm -hmm. pray about it. Then you stand for the next one. So it's still, I think it's still consistent. Oh, if I got the medieval, right. medieval aberration. Going yeah, on. go medieval kidding. on your I'm just liturgy. kidding. Uh, Dennis, isn't our next album going to be called Medieval Aberration? <laughs> I, yeah, we, we just need decided a, that we yet. We need a first album, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, time for a liturgy question. A medieval liturgy question. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. All right, this week we have a question from H. Burns. 
or Heather B., for anonymity purposes. Hi, Heather B. H. Burns. <laughs> and she says, hi, love your podcast. I was finally able to sit down with the germ in my missile, and I'm wondering what other rubric source Chris is reading from because it's not in the germ. The February 4th podcast was about the penitential right, and in the germ there are only two paragraphs, yet many other options for it were mentioned during the show. So uh, we, we've already responded to Heather, but... Uh, we thought maybe other people were confused as well. Uh, Chris, can you provide some clarity there? Yeah. So we wanted to take this season and actually look through the missile, you know, with the kind of the impetus uh, beginning with Traditionis Custodes. But this is basically what we do for a living anyway, is, you know, go back and look to exactly what the missile says that was reformed by the council with an eye to on tradition and kind of our contemporary situation. So in the missile is uh, laid out generally like this. At the very beginning is 399 paragraphs, which is called the general instruction of the Roman missal. Okay. And that provides, as the name sort of indicates, general instructions about how you use this. It's like a user's guide to the missile. And so that contains a lot of the content that we are um, that we're referencing. So sometimes we just call it uh, the germ. Uh, Dennis, you might remember Father Martis uh, never liked to call it the germ because remember he'd quip that uh, germs are what people don't want to get, but we do want people to get the germ structure. So some people call it a germ, which doesn't germ. bring much <laughs> consolation either. It sounds like reflux disease. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's part of it. But the real uh, kind of uh, organizing um, principle here is not necessarily the germ because anybody who is anybody who's ever tried to read the germ is probably uh found out it, it, it sometimes it seems there's no rhyme nor reason for how, where they put these parts in how they organize it it's not doesn't necessarily go from the beginning of mass to the end of mass they have different sections and whatnot that can be rather confusing so what we're following is what's called the order of mass the order of mass so after the front matter in the missal the germ some information on the calendar on communion there's a big long section called the proper of time or the proper of the season. And that has text for the liturgical year, but kind of right in the middle and really is the, the, I don't know, the, the backbone of this is called the order of mass. And that's numbered from one up to, I don't know, the last number of the order of mass, 130, 140. And so that's really um, the print. That's the order that we're following in the podcast. Now, from that order of mass, we'll make reference back to the germ or to other subsequent documents that uh, give explanation. But really, this is a walk through the order of mass. And those are the, the paragraphs that we'll be uh, mentioning as we go throughout. All right. Heather, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Dennis? Or this is Chris's cell phone number. No. <laughs> five, 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 six, six, six. <laughs> All right. Thank you. And God bless. Another episode of Liturgy Guys has mercifully come to an end. Our hosts are Chris, get out of my dreams and into my Carsons, Dennis, Big McNamara, and Jesse Y.O.Y.O. Weiler. Our producers are Michael, don't be so coy, and Nathan, first round draft Pippin. Our epiclesis inspector is Isabel Ringing. Our liturgical bookkeeper is Miss L. Romano. Our official aerobics instructor is Jen Uflecht. Our enforcer of choral discipline is Don B. Flat. Our official rubrics interpreter is Dewey Neal. Our self-gift provider is Kenosis. 
Our simplicity enforcer is Fran Siskin. And lastly, our crack team of confessors is Dewey, Shrivam, and Howe. And even though overstoles become understoles when they hear us say it, we are the, the Liturgy, Liturgy Guys. guys.